Well, take your Bible at this time and let's hear God speak to us through his word. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians 1, verses 29 through 30. Philippians 1, verses 29 through 30. As we read God's word, it is the very word of the living God speaking to us. Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we reflect on persevering through hard times in order to get the gospel into hard places. We know that we will share in what Paul here is testifying of. We will suffer, for we are called to suffer just as you have suffered for us. Not that we can add anything to your atoning work, but because we are one with you and we benefit from your salvation, we live the life you lived, and that means the cross comes before the crown. And so, Lord, may this message from your word Uh, penetrate our hearts, but also prepare our hearts to be people who are drawn close to you that we might persevere with you to advance the gospel here at home and around the world. And that, Lord, as the price and the cost and the suffering increases, we will not be those who shrink back but we will stand firm in the grace that you have poured out onto us, the unending mercy that we just sang about, the redeeming love and the atoning blood of your Son will enable us to be faithful and fruitful witnesses until you come. This is our heart's desire. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Well, as you can see from our scripture reading, we are focused on the last two verses of chapter 1. So we're concluding this section here in the book of Philippians in our series, Joy in the Journey. And uh, and so I hope this has been a blessing. I hope it's been encouraging, challenging, convicting as we kind of wrap up this chapter, this section. And then we will pause for our World Outreach Celebration. And then when I come back and begin a new series, we'll focus on a Christmas series, and then pick up in chapter 2 at the first of the year. As we focus on these last two verses, though, let me begin with a question. And I throw this question out to you. It's coming up on the screen. And that is, how do you respond to suffering? Suffering in the world and even suffering in your own life. How do you respond? What's your initial reaction, your instinctive reaction to suffering even on a grand scale like this pandemic, suffering due to massive catastrophes such as hurricanes in the Gulf or even wildfires in California, suffering as a result of what we're seeing across our country with racism and riots, suffering in the lives of family and friends, even Christian suffering persecution at the hands of those hostile towards Christianity? Is your natural instinct to ask, what in the world is going on? 
to question God's wisdom. Perhaps even to question God's goodness and His power. To assume that suffering isn't supposed to be part of life in this fallen world. To even think that suffering is somehow a mistake by God. The Apostle Paul is deeply concerned that the Philippians then in his day and us as Christ followers today would have a biblical view of suffering. And in particular, suffering for Christ's sake. And so here's the overarching idea, the big idea, the theme of these two verses as they continue really from the previous three verses we looked at last Sunday. And we can summarize Paul's concern this way. How you respond to suffering is often determined by how well you are standing firm in the sovereign grace of God who saves you. How you respond to suffering is often determined by how well you are standing firm in the sovereign grace of God who saves you. Paul is connecting, in these verses, those two ideas together. Palmer Chichkin, a pastor and author who grew up as a missionary kid in Africa, wrote about a whitewater rafting trip that he took with his brothers on the Zambezi River. The Zambezi River includes the famous Victoria Falls as it makes its way to the Indian Ocean. Palmer and his brothers began their rafting at the base of those falls. And he writes... Massive amounts of water spilled over the top of the giant falls and dropped almost 1,000 feet below. The roar was deafening, he says. He goes on and explains, Victoria Falls are the largest in the world, more than a mile wide. Mist from the spray fills the air like fog. It can be seen 50 miles away. He says the local villagers call it smoke that thunders. The water from the falls rushes down the gorge in torrents, creating the world's largest rapids. In the United States, the highest class rapid you can raft on is a class, anybody know? It's a class five. But the Zambezi's whitewater rapids can top seven and even eight. This trip was not for the faint of heart. He writes, and I quote, As I sat on the edge of the eight-person raft, all suited up in a tight life jacket and a thick crash helmet, I wondered, the Zambezi can't be that dangerous, can it? But then I heard the guide say, when the raft flips over, wait, what? He didn't say if the raft flips over or on the off chance we get flipped over, but when the raft flips, stay in the raft in the rough water. You will be tempted to swim toward the stagnant water on the edge of the banks of the river. But don't do it. It's in the calm, stagnant waters at the river's edge where crocodiles will wait for you. So when the raft flips, stay in rough water. Palmer goes on in his book and he makes the application that stagnant waters are deadly. And while the church... And perhaps every Christian might not want to stay in the rough waters of tribulation, the rough waters of suffering and trials when their raft is overturned. The rough water is still the best place to be. Which is why believers are to resist the temptation to swim where it seems safe, where it seems calm. Stagnant waters are where the truly deadly enemies are watching and waiting. But there's another application we can make as well. 
And that is, you better know all this before you ever get in the raft and you start your rafting trip down the Zambezi River. Because once the raft flips over, you won't have time to think clearly and to evaluate your options. The sudden shock and the craziness of the moment simply won't allow it, at least not on the Zambezi River. And the same is true when it comes to Christian suffering. Listen, I can't overstate how important it is to have a rock-solid theology of suffering before one ever starts to experience suffering. Because in the midst of some painful trial, the sudden shock of it, the craziness of the moment, often doesn't allow for sound theological reasoning on what you might believe about God and His goodness and His grace. In other words... The solid foundation that keeps you grounded cannot be constructed in the middle of rough waters. It needs to be firmly set in place beforehand so that it can serve as a source of hope in the midst of whatever suffering you might experience. And that's what Paul's doing here. He is seeking to lay such a foundation in order to exhort us to suffer for Christ in a manner that's worthy of the gospel and reflects that Jesus Christ truly is your king. It's clear from the context here that the saints in Philippi, these believers, were experiencing opposition for their commitment to Jesus Christ. In fact, verse 28 right here speaks of their opponents of the gospel. Verse 29 speaks of suffering for Christ's sake. And in verse 30, Paul says that they are experiencing the same conflict that he had experienced. Now, as we learned last Sunday, whenever we live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel and reflects that Christ is our king, we need to get ready. You say, get ready for what? Get ready to experience opposition for our commitment to Jesus Christ. And so for this reason, Paul says fearlessness is necessary to live worthy of the gospel. In other words, he says, it's possible to have gospel courage because Christ is our king and he's with us. So don't be frightened by your opponents of the gospel. Instead, remain confident in the power and protection of your king. But notice again what Paul says next in verses 29 through 30, which is a continuation of the same line of thought that we looked at here. He says, for it has been granted to you. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And so what we have here in just these two brief verses are really five foundational truths about suffering for Christ's sake. Part of what it means to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, folks, is to suffer in a manner that's worthy for the gospel. And so if you, you walk away with nothing, walk away with that understanding here. Paul is connecting these two things. You cannot separate one from the other. These are the foundational truths that we must hold fast to when suffering comes. We need to know these things before it comes. So what's the first truth? Number one, it says suffering for Christ is a mark of your salvation. It's a mark of your salvation. 
And the key to understanding this is to see the close connection between what Paul says, believing in Christ and suffering for Christ's sake. Again, he writes in verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only, what, believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So there's two parts that are connected. And the first part, Paul says, always guarantees the second part. If you believe in Christ, and that's the first part, then you will suffer for Christ, and that's the second part. D.A. Carson writes of these Philippians suffering. He says, if their salvation has been secured by the suffering of Christ on their behalf, then their discipleship is to be demonstrated in their own suffering on Christ's behalf. Though some Christians might want to deny this truth, there's no mistake. Suffering for Christ is a mark or even an evidence of one's salvation. This truth is established all throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself spoke of this in John chapter 15, where he says in verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you, care, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. Paul follows up on that same line of thought. He writes in Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The reality that suffering for Christ is a mark of your salvation is perhaps most clearly seen when Paul states in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, he says. Why? Because the darkness always hates the light. And as saints in Christ, we not only represent the life of Christ, but we also reflect the light of the gospel of Christ. John Calvin put it this way. Persecutions are in a manner seals of adoption to the children of God. If they endure them with fortitude and patience, their adoption can be no more separated from suffering than Christ can be torn asunder from himself. In other words, suffering for Christ's sake is the seal of our adoption into God's family. It's our birthright. It's our badge of authenticity as a Christ follower. So suffering for Christ. Very first thing Paul says here, it marks you out as a true believer in Jesus Christ. That's the first foundational truth to embrace about suffering for Christ's sake. The second foundational truth is suffering for Christ is a gift of God's grace. Now, most of us here, we understand that salvation is a gift from God. But Paul points out that suffering for Christ is also a gift from God. Look again what he says in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What an amazing thing to say. Paul says, for it has been granted to you. 
And the you here refers to every believer in the church of Philippi. Not just to some of them, not to the super-Christians in that church, but to all of them collectively together. And Paul says, for it has been granted to you. That's an interesting word to choose. This word granted means to give graciously, to do a favor for someone. In fact, we actually get our English word grace from this Greek word that's translated into granted. And so Paul's point is that God gives us two graces, two gifts of grace, salvation and, yes, suffering. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the faith to believe, our salvation, listen, it is a marvelous gift of God's grace. And yet, Paul's emphasis here in Philippians is not so much on the first aspect of God's gift of grace. Although that is certainly true. And he writes about it several times. But rather, he is emphasizing the second aspect when he says, but also suffer for his sake. And so every believer wants the gift of salvation, but the gift of suffering, well, that's the gift nobody wants. I certainly don't. But Paul says, God is doing you a favor. And you say, oh, good, what is it? He's going to let you suffer. And you're thinking, "Uh, God, can I not have that favor? Could you please give it to my brother or somebody else in my family or my neighbor? Give it to them. Like a Christmas gift, we don't want. We're tempted to try to return this particular gift, but God says you can't return this gift. The gift of suffering is too important. It's too significant. Now, at the same time, don't misunderstand. Paul is not encouraging us to go out and seek suffering. He's telling us that when it comes, God has actually granted it to us as a gift of his grace. Now, let's be honest. For me, and probably for many of you, Paul sees suffering far different than how most of us see suffering. You see, we think it's just evil of all evils to suffer anything, and so we will do anything to avoid suffering, to get out from under it. But Paul says that God in his grace, not his disfavor, but in his grace, has granted you the privilege to suffer for Christ. And so contrary to what we might think, suffering is not a sign that God has abandoned you. It's not a sign that God doesn't like you, that his favor is not upon you, but rather that God does look upon you with favor and that God is with you. Now, from a human perspective, I get it, suffering stinks. But from God's perspective, suffering is a gift of his grace. And this perspective is key to enduring suffering. Victor Frankl A Jewish psychologist lived during the Holocaust and was a prisoner in a Jewish concentration camp during World War II. And while seeking to survive the horror of this imprisonment, Victor began observing his fellow prisoners in the hope of discovering what coping mechanism 
would help him endure this horrendous existence. What Victor discovered was this. Those individuals who could not accept what was happening to them and could not make their present suffering fit within their faith or couldn't find its meaning in their own worldview, despaired, lost hope, and eventually gave up and died. Whereas, on the other hand, those prisoners who found a meaning from their faith were then able to find hope for their future beyond their present suffering and so could accept what they were enduring as part of their existence. It was these prisoners who survived. And you may not find yourself in a prison like Paul. You may not find yourself in a concentration camp like Victor did. Nevertheless, you may be suffering for Christ. And if so, Ask God to enable you to see your suffering from his perspective. To see it as a gift of his grace and to receive suffering as a gift that allows you to live worthy of the gospel. The second foundational truth is suffering for Christ is a gift of God's grace. And this leads us right into the third foundational truth. It is endured for his sake. That is for Christ's sake. Suffering for Christ is endured for his sake. We see this when Paul writes in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. One commentator writes, the suffering Paul has in view here is not everyday headaches and heartaches. Suffering on behalf of Christ is caused by public identification with Christ in a world that is hostile to Christ. And so as citizens of heaven, who now live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, live in a manner that reflects that Jesus Christ is your king, Paul is telling us here, we can't expect to suffer for Christ's sake. Paul summarizes it this way. Believing in Christ causes suffering for Christ. Jesus, after all, he basically said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 10 and 11, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on My account, he says. So it's not a blessing to be persecuted if you're just being persecuted for no good reason. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Listen, some people are persecuted simply because they're obnoxious. You may know someone like that. Their belligerent behavior, it's almost like it invites persecution. Jesus says, make sure that when you are persecuted, it's for my sake. And the response of the first apostles in this regard is quite amazing. After they were beaten for bearing witness to Christ, their response is remarkable. It says in Acts 5.41 that they actually rejoiced because they were counted worthy of suffering dishonor for the name of Christ. Think about that. Part of living worthy of the gospel is that God counts you worthy to suffer for him. John Calvin counted suffering for Christ as an honor when he wrote, Oh, if this conviction were fixed in our minds, that persecutions are to be reckoned among God's benefits. 
What progress would be made in the doctrine of godliness? And yet, what is more certain than that? It is the highest honor of the divine grace that we suffer for his name, either reproach or imprisonment or miseries or tortures or even death. For in that case, he decorates us with his insignia. One illustration of suffering for Christ's sake took place in the city of Mosul in Iraq. In 2014, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, better known as ISIS, ordered all the Christians in that city to either convert to Islam, pay a protection fee, leave, or be killed. And in the meantime, every house occupied by a Christian family was physically marked with the Arabic letter N. The letter N identified the homes of Christ's followers. You say, why the letter N? What did it mean? According to one converted Palestinian, the letter N tracks back centuries ago when the Christians then were referred to as followers of Jesus of Nazareth. And so they mark these homes with the letter N to identify people who belong to the Nazarene. Now, this is Philippians 1 here played out in a tangible way. These families have been marked by their opponents. And not only that, the letter is a sign that as followers of the Nazarene, they are members of the family of God who are counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. And so we must always remember that suffering for Christ's sake is endured for his sake. The fourth foundational truth is suffering for Christ is a means of partnership. It's actually a means of partnership. Paul indicates that the Philippians share in the same sufferings with him. When he writes in verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw, I had and now hear that I still have. You see, they, that is these Philippian believers, and Paul, together they made up this heroic partnership of the gospel that Paul alluded to back in verse 5, which meant that they shared in the same sufferings with Paul. You see, what they saw Paul endure in Philippi 10 years earlier when he uh, planted this church in Philippi, And what they are now enduring in the city of Philippi, along what they are hearing Paul was enduring in Rome, are all part of the same conflict, Paul says. Together, they're suffering for Christ. Whether it's in Philippi or whether it's in Rome, was a means of partnership of the gospel in the same conflict. It's interesting that Paul even uses that word to describe it, conflict. It originally referred to an arena where some athletic or gladiator contest took place. Later on in Paul's day, it had come to refer to any kind of agonizing struggle or conflict. In fact, uh, the Greek word agon or agon is where we get our word agony. In fact, this word conflict was used by another author, another contemporary in Paul's day to compare the suffering of Christian martyrs with the struggle of athletes in a contest. 
And this comparison between the two is spot on, since the struggle of athletes and the suffering of Christian martyrs often occurred in the same arena before the same spectators. What's interesting is Paul now draws from images of an athletic contest to portray his own suffering. He does this over in chapter 3 of Philippians, where he writes in verses 13 and 14, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul ran his race, according to verse 10, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and notice, and may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so Paul now, he wants us to run the same race as him when he writes later on in verse 17 of chapter 3. Now he says, join together in following my example. And so Paul is saying that when you suffer for Christ, he's saying understand something here. In a tangible way, in a mysterious way, in a spiritual way, Paul is saying that when you suffer for Christ, whether it was with the Philippians in the city of Philippi back then, or even in Iraq or in China today, or perhaps even now here in America, he's saying you are engaged in the same conflict, running with him in the very same contest. Although we may not be. In literal change, like Paul was in Rome, Paul's account of suffering for Christ is designed to encourage us, to motivate us in our own suffering for Christ. Paul wants us to know that when we suffer for Christ, it puts us in the same arena, running the same race and engaged in the same conflict as he was. And the last foundational truth about suffering is number five. Suffering for Christ is to be expected. It's simply to be expected. So are you ready for it? Are you prepared to suffer for Christ? And again, we go back to the illustration on the Zambezi River. Listen, you need to be prepared and ready before you ever get in the raft. You need to have a a biblical understanding of what the expectation is for Christ followers before this begins. This is not theoretical. Oh, it may be true that not everyone here will face a direct threat on our lives because of our faith in Jesus Christ, at least not not yet here in America. And yet suffering for Christ should be expected especially as the day of Christ draws near. Again, Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Sam Gordon writes, the reality is God never promised the believer smooth sailing, but he did promise us a safe landing. Now, At the same time, you may be wondering, well, what about other kinds of suffering? Suffering that is not directly because of persecution against us for our faith in Jesus Christ. What about that kind of suffering? Well, John Piper actually seeks to answer this question in one of his books that he wrote called Desiring God. 
He writes, and I quote, All of life, if it is lived earnestly by faith in the pursuit of God's glory and the salvation of others, will meet with some kind of obstacle in suffering. The suffering that comes to the obedient Christian is part of the price of living where you are are in obedience to the call of God. In choosing to follow Christ in the way He directs, we choose all that this path includes under His sovereign providence. Thus, all suffering that comes in the path of obedience is suffering with Christ and for Christ, whether it is cancer at home or persecution far away. All experiences, he goes on to write, of suffering in the path of Christian obedience, whether from persecution or sickness or accident, have this in common. They all threaten our faith in the goodness of God and tempt us to leave the path of obedience. Therefore, every triumph of faith and all perseverance in obedience are testimonies to the goodness of God and the preciousness of Christ. Whether the enemy is sickness, Satan, sin, or sabotage, therefore, all suffering of every kind that we endure in the path of our Christian calling is suffering with Christ and for Christ. Piper goes on to say, what turns sufferings into sufferings with and for Christ is not how intentional our enemies are, but how faithful we are. If we are Christ, then what befalls us for the glory, for his glory and for our good, whether it is caused by enzymes or enemies, When we speak of the purposes of suffering, we mean both persecution and the accidents and sicknesses that befall us in any path of faith. Do you see what Piper is saying here? When the job is lost and you're tempted to lose faith and to say, Lord, you've abandoned me. But instead, you say in faith, Lord, I will magnify your name. I will believe in you no matter what. When you've gotten a terminal diagnosis, and instead of saying, Lord, you don't care about me, you say, Lord, I want you to get the glory in this. I want this to be a witness to my children and to my grandchildren and all to my friends. That's kind of suffering. That is being offered up as a sweet-smelling aroma to Christ. Lord, take this, whatever it might be, and be glorified by it. Paul says that there's just one thing that matters. Listen, as citizens of heaven, the only thing that matters is to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wants us to know that this call to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel is also a call to suffer in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. You cannot separate the two. Therefore, a biblical view of suffering is essential. Listen, the understanding that salvation and suffering are both gifts of God's grace is essential to living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The challenge before us is to realize how God used Jesus' suffering to bring us to everlasting joy in salvation. 
and therefore to see our own suffering now as opportunities to bring Jesus even more glory till he comes again. In his book, The Insanity of God, Nick Ripkin writes about a man named Dmitry who became a follower of Jesus in the Soviet Union under the communist regime. After becoming a follower of Jesus, he started to teach his kids about Jesus, and slowly his teaching grew to where there were 150 people illegally gathered in his home to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And as you might imagine, eventually he was thrown into prison. In a prison that was 1,000 kilometers away from his home, he had two practices that he did every single day in that prison. One of the practices was that Dimitri would stand with his hands in the air and he would face to the east and he would sing what he called his heart song to Jesus. It was a song of praise. It was a song of adoration. It was a song of lifting high the name that is above all names. The other thing he would do was whenever he was allowed to go into the courtyard of the prison, he would look for these little scraps of paper. And on those little scraps of paper, he would write down as many scripture verses as he could remember, and then he would stick these little pieces of paper to the pole that was next to his prison cell. The story is told that he did this for 17 years. And finally, the guards just had enough of it, and they pulled him out of his cell and said, Dimitri, unless you recant, unless you tell us that you're not a follower of Jesus anymore, we are going to kill you. And he said, that's fine because I cannot turn my back on my Savior. The next day, after being in prison for 17 years, the Soviet guards dragged Dimitri out of his prison cell. Everybody had already heard this happen the day before. They had heard his public declaration that he was not going to turn back on his faith. And as they walked him in front of all these prison cells, that what Dimitri saw absolutely shocked him. Every single prisoner, 1,500 prisoners in this dark, dungy Soviet prison, stood at attention at the side of their bed, and as he walked in front of them, they raised their hands and they sang the song that he had sung for 17 years. As he describes it, this angelic choir of criminals shined a light on the name above all names. The guards immediately took their hands off of him and said, Who in the world are you? He said, I'm a child of the one true God. And a few days later, they let him go. Church, listen to me. Like Dimitri, you are a child of the one true God. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so resolve. Resolve even now in your own heart to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel no matter what. No matter what the cost might be. And then be ready to suffer for Christ's sake. And I pray that whatever may come your way, like Paul, your one supreme ambition then will simply be to magnify Christ. Whether by life or by death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we declare back to you 
that we long to live as citizens of your kingdom. To taste your goodness and then to live in a way that reflects it. And so, Lord, help us to stand confidently in the gospel. Help us to strive boldly and fearlessly for the faith of the gospel and for the furtherance of the gospel. And, Lord, whatever comes our way because of that, Lord, we thank you for the grace to suffer for Christ's sake. And, Lord, we thank you today of our brothers and sisters around the world who have made that claim and who have given their life because they meant it. As we lift up your name, may we not give up in freedom what they refuse to give up in persecution. And so for the glory of your name, we pray this. Amen.